Hi, everyone. Before we get to the show, I wanted to let you know about my new on-demand course for discovering and developing core values. On this podcast, I've chatted with many guests about the importance of incorporating core values in their life and career. High achievers will tell you it's the key to many of their accomplishments. I get asked a lot by readers of Friday Forward and Elevate about the best way to do this, and I haven't had an easy answer to date. This course is that way. The course walks you through a tested method to help you brainstorm, refine, and test a list of personal core values. The course can be completed in about an hour, but it will prompt plenty of reflection and work in the days, weeks, and months that follow. Start discovering the principles that matter most to you and get better alignment. You can learn more about the course at corevaluescourse.com. I hope you check it out at corevaluescourse.com. Now let's get to the episode. The research is crystal clear that as human beings, we are hardwired to be creative. That's our natural state. So all of us, truly all of us, have huge reservoirs of creative capacity. You're listening to the Elevate Podcast, and I'm your host, Robert Glazer. Join me as I talk to world-class performers about how they build their capacity and reach greater heights in leadership, business, and life, and how you can do the same. Welcome to the Elevate Podcast. Our quote for today is from Seth Godin. Lots and lots of people are creative when they feel like it, but you're only going to become a professional if you do it when you're not in the mood. Our guest today, Josh Linkner, is a brilliant expert on creativity and innovation. He's the founder and CEO of five tech companies, which sold for a combined value of $200 million. He's a highly respected business leader, venture capitalist, keynote speaker, and even a gifted jazz guitarist. He's also the New York Times bestselling author of multiple books, including Discipline Dreaming and The Road to Reinvention, and his latest Big Little Breakthroughs will publish the day this episode releases. Josh, welcome. Great to have you join us on the Elevate podcast. Thanks so much. Great to be with you. Big little breakthroughs. It sounds like uh, Big Little Lies, uh, that show. <laughs> so I know you describe yourself as as being a bit of an outcast or a misfit as a kid, and I know you turned to creativity as a refuge. Tell me a little bit about what that was like. Was the was what you were good at sort of uh, shunned upon in the traditional school system? I'm guessing you weren't good at coloring in the the boxes and the lines. Yeah, so I grew up in Detroit. I'm a hardcore Detroit guy, born in the city, not the suburbs, as were my parents and grandparents. And, um, you know, I, I always felt a little odd. I mean, I, there could be 20 kids in a room and I'd feel like there was 19 of them and one of me. By the way, not in like an, an arrogant way. I didn't think I was better. Probably I mainly felt like I was just weird, different. But it, and it did it did play uh, to my favor as, as time went on, because what I've learned is that those that just sort of heads down, do what they're told, follow the rules, ultimately kind of peak out at their ability to create impact and success, whereas those that are you know a little bit odd sometimes can uh, bust through to different levels. And, and for you, where was that creativity just like, was it nature or nurture? Where did that come from? I'm so glad you asked that question because um, too often we think that one out of a thousand of us are born creative and the rest of us have to suffer. And while I was always a bit of a misfit, I'm not more or less creative than anybody else inherently. In fact, the research is crystal clear that as human beings, we are hardwired to be creative. That's our natural state. So all of us, truly all of us, have huge reservoirs of creative capacity. In my case, I probably connected to it early and started playing around and making mistakes as I still do today. Uh, so I, I perhaps developed those skills a little bit earlier. But um, truly, all of us can be creative in our own ways. Do you think the school system today like suppresses creativity? Completely. In fact, it's been said that we enter kindergarten with a full set of colorful crayons and we graduate high school with a single blue ballpoint pen. And, and by the way, it's, 
it's yeah. not the teacher's fault. Like teachers are heroes, but but we have a system that was designed for a different era that was designed to teach compliance instead of creative problem solving. And so it's really a tragedy to me. It's a bit heartbreaking. Uh, you know, reminding me of a story one time, my daughter, Chloe, who's now uh, just finishing her senior year at the University of Michigan, but she was like in elementary school and the teacher said, hey, go draw a picture of a bear. So she's like, all right, cool. So she draws like this purple bear and it's funky shaped and she's all excited and she presents it to the teacher waiting for praise. And the teacher says, Chloe, that's not what bears look like. Go back and redo it. And so in that moment, like a little bit of her creativity was suppressed and, you know, it wasn't tragic. She wasn't abused, but, but, you know, yeah. apply that to hundreds of times throughout a childhood. And we ultimately, instead of growing into our creative abilities, we tend to grow out of them. So you made it through school uh, and you had an interesting start to your career from what I read. Uh, I think you started as a professional jazz guitarist before becoming an entrepreneur, not, not the typical path, but I'm guessing most entrepreneurs are not typical. So what, how did that start? And what did you learn from jazz that you carried into your business career? Well, yeah, exactly right. I put myself through college playing music. I still play today. You know, I've been playing for 40 years. I just love the art form. It's dangerous and you take risks and you course correct and it's kind of beautiful. But actually what I learned in jazz was a wonderful teacher for the business world. Wonderful. Because so in a jazz combo, first of all, every night you play the same song, it always turns out different. So you can play for 10 years in a row and always, you know, same song, different outcomes. And so it's really this, this improvised, it's like real-time innovation that's unfolding in front of a live audience. And there's no redos. You can't go back and fix stuff. And it's this sort of messy cultural vibe where you riff off one another, you take responsible risks, and the whole cultural elements of a jazz combo, if I go play it safe, I get laughed off the stage. But if I hit a terrible note, like a terrible clunker, I just play it twice more and call it art. Everything is fine. So there's sort of like a high tolerance for, for risk-taking. And um, what I've learned is that that really is the perfect metaphor for business. You know, it, maybe in the past, you know, back to our, your school question, 50 years ago, the, the metaphor for leadership was that of a classical symphony conductor. One person stands in the center of the room, the CEO, he or she directs the orchestra to play exactly the notes as they're written on the page. But today we live in a world of, of deep complexity and fierce competition and mind-numbing speed. Point is that we don't have sheet music written in front of us. We have to invent it as we go. So I think the, the metaphor today really is that of a jazz combo, where the baton of leadership is passed back and forth, where you one idea builds off the next and into the next. And, and it's a bit messy, but, but those that sort of small, intense, creative group, I believe, is what wins not only in jazz, but certainly in business. And, and so how did you make that? What was the transition? So you're playing music. Uh, what was your first job? What was your first business? What did that look like? Yeah, it's funny. So I would get called, I was a freelance jazz guitarist. I did play in a couple of bands, but um, basically you'd always just figure it out, which is a core element of in innovators, like the sense like we can figure this out. So I'd get a call on like a Thursday, hey, we're looking for a guitar player for this weekend. It's a substitute job. We need a guy who does like a like classical with a little bit of Latin influence and some heavy metal and, and a bit of country background with some reggae. I'd be like, oh, that's awesome. Yeah, I've just been practicing that. I'll figure it out. And, and of course, I'd never played any of that and you just figure it out. Now, now there's probably now there's probably an app for that, by the way. Now there's probably an app for that. <laughs> to find the person, yeah. <laughs> but back in the day, so again, I'm dating myself. In 1990, I was 20 years old. You couldn't just go buy a computer at Best Buy or order it from Dell at a discount price. Computers, personal computers were really just emerging. And I, I was kind of a tech nerd. Like I, I wasn't a programmer, but I always liked technology. And I realized that I could mail order components, like a motherboard and memory from one place and an amber screen and monitor from someplace else, and like slap them together in my college apartment and sell them at a profit on campus. And, and what I ended up doing was I literally had never taken a business class. I didn't know what a profit and loss statement was. I didn't know anything. But that spirit of jazz, like, hey, we'll just figure this out as we go, was sort of compelling. So I started with no idea what I was doing. And it just 
kind of like got started and, and tried to figure it out as I went. So what was the first business? Yeah, it was called Gator Computers. I went to the University of Florida. So yeah. um, I actually started the Berkeley School of Music, long story short, ended up at the University of Florida. And uh, I, we, we basically, I just mail-ordered computer components. Eventually, I ended up taking a, an office space, and we sold computers to individuals, to corporations, and we became a, a computer supplier. And, and you sold that business? I did. I ended up taking a year off of college, and I would build it up during the day and play jazz at night, sort of a weird mix. And it wasn't, look, it wasn't a huge business. It wasn't a billion-dollar yeah. outcome, but I learned a lot and made a ton of mistakes. And I did end up selling the company when I and then went back and finished college. Uh, and so I've, I always like starting things. I like, you know, that, that raw, messy aspect of a startup. And um, I've had the chance to do that now five times. And so what was your biggest startup? The biggest company that I built was called ePrize. We designed, built, and ran digital promotions for large brand advertisers. You best think of it as half ad agency and half software company. Ended up growing to having um, offices in not only Detroit, where I live, but uh, uh, Chicago, LA, New York, London, Dallas. Uh, we worked with 74 of the top 100 brands, and I sold the company in 2012. I started it in 99. And uh, you know, throughout, throughout the course of these combined businesses, I've had the chance to create about 10,000 jobs, uh, just to give you a sense of scale. ePrize was about a $100 million company when we sold it. Uh, so is after that, you switched into, started doing venture capital? Was that it when you did that? Or did you have another one after that? <laughs> yeah, I, I actually have done a couple of other things since then. But um, I, yeah, I started a, a venture fund in 2010 called Detroit Venture Partners. And the goal was, we really loved my partners and I, Detroit. And we wanted to help our, our, our beloved city that had fallen on such hard times. And we said, maybe we'll make some money, but maybe we can make a difference. So we decided to use tech investing, backing these passionate tech entrepreneurs in downtown Detroit and giving them credibility and, and, and support and coaching and capital to see if we could reestablish Detroit as a beacon of innovation and opportunity. And I'll tell you what, people thought we're nuts. They're like, you can't do this in Detroit. Go to Boston, go to New York, go to Silicon Valley. So we did it anyway. And uh, the results are pretty cool, actually. Uh, when, when we started the fund in, in the entire 140 square miles of Detroit, Michigan, there was not one tech startup. And with, uh, within four years of the funds launching, within one square block of our building, again, not all of Detroit, but one square block, there were 70 tech startups. And, and there was over a thousand creative entrepreneurial workers working in those 70 companies in that one square block. So I'm certainly not taking credit for Detroit's turnaround. There are way more important people than me doing way more important things. But it was kind of cool because we, we practiced many of the principles that I write about ourselves to help rebuild our city. And, and it actually paid off. Yeah, Detroit. I was in Detroit for an event a couple of years ago. It's it's had quite a renaissance. The downtown. I mean, it's really, it's really come a long way. Also, as an investor, I assume it's probably from a return on investment better to be in a market where demand and supply. You know, in the West Coast, I mean, it, it, I hear people say it's hard to do. You know, friends and family round is five million dollars. <laughs> so it's hard. It's hard to even be an angel investor when friends and family rounds are five million dollars. Yeah, in our case, we really tried to just play to our strengths. We didn't want to become like. The, the Silicon Valley of the Midwest, we want it to be the Detroit of Detroit. And what I find often in life is that when you take a counterintuitive approach, it really becomes uh, successful. I often refer to it as a judo flip. So like you see what everybody else is doing and then ask yourself, all right, what's the polar opposite? So in our case, we started in Detroit. Everyone thought we were crazy, but first of all, there's wonderful engineering talent. You've got major universities like University of Michigan, got yeah. all this engineering talent from the auto industry that wanted something fresh to do. But at the same time, we had a low cost basis. We could stand out sort of every little tech company was a major front page story. Um, there was way more loyalty. People didn't job flip. And so people would say, like, there's not enough talent to build these companies. And my premise was, 
it's not an, a raw number issue, it's a ratio issue. In other words, Silicon Valley has more raw numbers of engineers, but there are far more companies chasing them. Right. So the thing is like, if you start a company in San Francisco, good luck overpaying for a D-level engineer. Whereas in Detroit, yeah, there are fewer engineers, but, but way fewer companies chasing them. So we were able to get incredible talent much more affordably. They didn't job bounce. And so we just tried to use our weaknesses to our advantage. So how, how many companies have you backed? Well, both inside Detroit Venture Partners and then outside as, a, as an investor, I've been involved in the launch of about 100 startups. Wow. Not, not all have succeeded. We've had some total losses, but we've had a couple of good wins. One that we were involved with, uh, most notably, is called StockX. And it was originally a, D a Detroit Venture Partners investment that pivoted the, into yeah. business and became StockX. Uh, but now the company's valued at over $3 billion. Is that sneaker, right? Yeah, it's sort of the, well, they call themselves the stock market of things. Uh, yeah. So it's not just sneakers, but it started as just sneakers and they're now expanding to other categories. I think we worked with them at some point. Interesting. So that's a, yeah, look, I mean, I think 70% in that, in that business is, <laughs> ratio is even, would even be a win. Have you ever owned something that inspired you to up your game? Two years ago, I bought a dual suspension mountain bike for the first time, and it pushed me to ride trails that I had never been willing to try before. When we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all-new Lexus GX has exceptional capability that will have you seeing the possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. The Lexus GX comes with available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, best-in-class towing capacity, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. I've seen the new Lexus GX popping up all around my town, and not only does it have the capabilities to take you to new places on and off the road, but it's a great-looking car. The new Lexus GX is ready to raise the bar for you. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. When you're hiring for your small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role. That's why you have to check out LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn Jobs has the tools to help find the right professionals for your team faster and free. LinkedIn isn't just a job board. It helps you identify and hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. Case in point, last year I asked the CEO of a major ski resort how he got his job, and he told me that he saw it on LinkedIn and decided to apply. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. On LinkedIn, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Hire professionals like a professional on LinkedIn. The team at LinkedIn is also constantly finding ways to make the process easier. They even just launched a feature that helps you write job descriptions, making the process easier and quicker. Post your job for free at linkedin.com slash practical. That's linkedin.com slash practical to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. In 2017, entrepreneur John Rampton was frustrated with the available calendar tools, which led him to create calendar.com. Calendar.com allows all of your different calendars to come together in one place. It also has some great features that solve many of the common frustration of team calendars. Smart links with notifications ensure you never need to worry about double booking or no-shows. The Find a Time feature compares everyone's schedules at once, finding the optimum time to meet. No more emailing back and forth trying to find out when everyone is free. And you also get analytics that will give you reports that show how you and your team are spending your time, allowing you to be more efficient. If you're looking to make yourself or your team more efficient this year, 
Head over to calendar.com now to start your 30-day free trial and see the difference for yourself. That's C-A-L-E-N-D-A-R.com. So get, let's get back to your, your new book, uh, Big Little Breakthroughs. I think one of the ideas, you know, there's a lot of talk about environment and habits. I, I think you're making a similar argument that, you know, physical environment has a big impact on, you know, how you develop creative ideas. If people or companies are feeling like they need to be more creative, what are the environmental factors that they should look into? Yeah, so the book, Big Little Breakthroughs, How Small Everyday Innovations Drive Oversized Results, is really it's sort of a judo flip, if you will, back to my term, but you're, we're sort of flipping upside down what innovation is all about. You know, most of us think that you can only be innovative if you're a billion-dollar company or it's a billion-dollar idea or if you're wearing a lab coat or a hoodie. And this is like innovation for the rest of us. It helps everyday people become everyday innovators. So, it, yeah, you're right. We get a lot into what can individuals and organizations do to breed creativity, to develop those skills and ultimately to drive the impact of the outcomes that they care about the most. So your question about environment is, is a thoughtful one. You know, if you think about a greenhouse, that, that's an optimal conditions for plants to grow. Yeah. But as a company, I think it's leaders' a primary responsibility is to create optimal conditions for creativity to flourish. Because if we're not tapping into the creative brain power of, the, of every person, you know, I think we're really missing a, a key asset at our disposal. And so there are physical things that we can do. You, you see like the playful offices of, of Google and such, but it goes way beyond the physical. A lot of it's about creating the right rituals and rewards that support the creative process. I mean, just one really quick example. So in the book, I, I really don't tell the stories of Netflix and Apple and Amazon because we already know they're cool. We already know they're innovative. So I tried to find these little gems that no one's ever heard of. There's one company in, in the UK who I interviewed for the book and it's guys that runs a 50 person nonprofit, but he has a cool ritual to keep his team leaning into creativity and taking responsible risks. Every Friday, they do something called F up Fridays. Well, they say the whole word. I'm just being PG to be polite. Yeah, but I, I think we, we can fill in the blank. Yeah, we can fill in the blank. So F up Fridays, he brings his whole company together for a, a brown bag lunch, all 50 some people. And they literally go around person by person. And they, each person stands up and proudly shares what they effed up that week and what they learned from it. And it's not a scarlet letter. It's a badge of honor. And everyone's like, that's awesome. And when they get to somebody that didn't F something up that week, they're like, well, why not? Like, what are you going to try next week? And so they built this very simple cultural ritual that reinforced the conditions, the outcomes that they're trying to create is, is tapping into everybody's creativity. And, and I just want to be more explicit. So that taps into creativity because it just normalizes that failure is part of being creative. Uh, is that what sort of stifles creativity when people are afraid to get it wrong? The single biggest blocker of human creativity is not natural talent. It's fear. Fear of what? It's fear of fill in the blank. It's fear of looking foolish. It's fear of being wrong. It's fear of losing something. It's fear of you know undermining a colleague. It's a whole ball of fear. And, and some of those fears are, are more realistic than others. Some are just sort of free-floating anxiety and fear. But fear and creativity cannot coexist individually or in an organization. So if you're a leader that says, hey, I need creative ideas. Yeah, you got three minutes to do them and they better be right or else. You're going to yeah. get sent to corporate timeout. You're just training your people to never be creative. Whereas a ritual like this one, it not only acknowledges that failure is part of the process, but it also sort of emboldens people that, hey, this is part of your gig. Like we're counting on you. And if we really want you to be innovative, we know we're going to have to tolerate some setbacks along the way. And so let's make a big show. of Interesting. So Another thing that you talk about in the book is really about, again, this, the innovation can be small and daily rather than kind of these big things. Now, uh, look, a lot of us hear about, you know, the moonshots and Google and Amazon and the 10x stuff and failure. So how, is it sort of like the venture problem where we only see the successes? I mean, a lot of that 10x stuff 
has worked, but a lot of it hasn't. So is that is that distorting people's view of real, like what's creative and what's innovative? It does. So this is the opposite of that. It's not a moonshot. It's a yeah. pebble, <laughs> uh, but, but lots of them. And I'll tell you why I think it's a much more productive approach. First of all, most people can't make a billion dollar plus bet the whole company decision. And so we think of, you know, this is like this teeny little exclusive club where Elon right. Musk is the face of innovation, but in, by the same sense that excludes the vast majority of us. Second of all, those moonshots are wildly risky generally. And unless you have the capacity to suffer through a massive loss, like that, that could be really problematic. And when the stakes are that high, most of us gravitate to doing nothing. So Big Little Breakthroughs is all about cultivating high velocity, high volume of little teeny micro innovations on a daily basis, taking lots and lots of experiments, many of which will not succeed. But in doing so, here's what happens. First of all, you de-risk getting your arms around innovation right. in a giant way. It's the opposite of wildly risky. Second of all, it becomes accessible to everybody. You know, you don't need to be wearing a lab coat or a hoodie. All of us can be creative. And then third of all, you're starting to cultivate skill. And in taking lots of little practices along the way, you actually are much better equipped to go after bigger ideas later on. And finally, those little wins really do add up. You know, so I think I always like to talk about, you know, you look at the Mona Lisa, arguably the most beautiful painting ever created, but that wasn't Da Vinci's first painting. First, he had to learn to paint. He had to paint every day. He had to paint a bunch of bad paintings before he developed his ability to paint a good one. And so I think we should take the pressure off of ourselves that with no practice, no warm up, their first idea should be bulletproof and perfect and fully defensible and, and get more to the true artistic process of lots of little things come out and some work, some don't. And you, you run them down the board and, and over time, they add up to great things. Right. Again, for most companies, I could see that that's a lot more you know, accessible. Also, I mean, in thinking about Google and their moonshot, I, I don't know that any one of these has been successful yet. I mean, they spent a lot of money on glass. They spent a lot of money on other stuff. There haven't been a lot of, not saying, I mean, again, the whole point is if it is, it's exponential, but I, I haven't seen a lot of repeated wins coming out of that program. Yeah. And, and I'm not being critical of that. I think yeah. Google should do that because they have the resources to do so. But, but again, most of us aren't Google. And, and the book really covers stories of more normal people like you and me that are, you know, got a mortgage to pay or whatever, but, but they still find ways to, to use human ingenuity, to use inventive thinking and creative problem solving to tackle their most profound challenges and seize their biggest opportunities. Interesting. So I'm curious, what do you feel about, how, what's your feeling on brainstorming? <laughs> <laughs> so I just looked this up the other day. In, in 1958, a number of new technologies came on the scene. There was the magnetic tape for storage. There was the Rolodex to keep track of your contacts. There was a new the new thing called a video game, literally the first video game. You couldn't even tell it, but it, say, it was like it was tennis, although it didn't look like it. Yeah. And this new bold technology for idea extraction comes out called brainstorming. Fast forward to 2021. Well, storage has changed. You could put the entire Library of Congress on a thumb drive, and you don't need a Rolodex because you have LinkedIn. And tennis video games look as realistic as the real thing, yet we're still using the same outdated technology of brainstorming. So I think brainstorming was maybe good in the day, but right now it basically is a perfect exercise to yield mediocre ideas. Again, fear creeps in because when we share an idea, we're like responsible for it. And you've probably seen this. There's five people in a room. One person brainstorms that comes up with an idea and the other four become the instantly self-appointed idea police and tell you all the reasons the idea will never work. So I've developed over the last 20 years, uh, I call it better technology, but basically a better toolkit. I don't call it brainstorming. I call it idea jamming, kind of like we're jamming with jazz or whatever, but it's better technology. And so I developed actually 13 techniques that are much more fun, but much more effective when the goal is to solve problems or seize opportunities with human creativity. 
So you had a story in the book about uh, Derek Amato, who suffered a, a major head injury and then somehow became a, a piano savant as a result. What's the moral of that story in terms of understanding our innate creativity and how we kind of uh, unleash it or, or access it? Yeah, so the, for those that didn't read that or don't know the story, this, this guy, Derek, was horsing around with his buddies one day outside by the pool in the summer day, so, so, tosses him the ball, he jumps over to catch the ball, and he misjudged the depth of the pool. So his head like slammed into the concrete. And thank God he didn't have like a, any life-threatening injuries, you know, ringing in his ears, and he was you know, a little bit disoriented. But a couple of days later, he went over to his friend's house, and there was like a dusty old piano in the corner. And he was sort of drawn to it. He walked up to it and started to play. And he played for a couple hours, like this beautiful music, intricate with the dexterity of a master. The thing is, he didn't know how to play piano. He'd never even taken a music lesson. So finding this to be rather unusual, as you might imagine, he, he started like getting together with all these experts trying to figure out what happened. And what happened was ultimately diagnosed as something called acquired savant syndrome. And we know if we hear of little children being savants, maybe they're great at math or memory or something. But in this case, the head trauma that Derek suffered unlocked a part of his brain, and it ultimately allowed him to become, today, he's a professional musician. So what the reason I, I shared this story, though, is that most of us have huge untapped creative capacity, and, and we don't need a head injury to unlock it. But what, what happens is the brain, we used to think, okay, right brain, left brain, right brain is the creative one, the left brain is the suit and tie one. And, and that's not the way it works. New, new research with neuroscience and fMRI machines show that creativity is actually much more of an integrated network of things happening in the human brain. And so really, we all have the hardware to bring more creative ability to the surface. And just like Derek, I mean, imagine if you had a, a talent like that, and which is laying dormant, you'd want to unlock it. And my premise in the book is that we all have that laying dormant. It'll manifest in different ways. Doesn't mean you'll play piano or I'll do interpretive dance, but we can all use that innate talent, that skill, deploy it effectively. And I think it can, can drive the outcomes in our lives that we care about the most. I still want to understand the science of what happened to him. So the, the premise is that it's there, you know, versus like, it's something you have to put together or did that accelerate some connections in his head or, or it's just like, it was there, like a dog knows how to swim and you just need to uh, unleash it. I, I still can't wrap my head around that one. No, no pun intended. <laughs> That's a good one. Well, I, I can't speak to the chemistry in Derek Amato, but I will share an interesting, uh, neuroscience thing that I cover in the book, because I'm, I'm, again, I'm a jazz musician. So like, this is really near and dear yeah. to my heart. So a scientist named Charles Lim, he, he outfit, he tricked out an fMRI machine so that jazz musicians could go inside it and improvise. There was like a series of mirrors so you could access right. your instrument or whatever. And he, he, he watched their brains firing in real time when they performed music that was on, written on the page. And then of course, when they improvised. And what they found was fascinating to me anyway, that the part of your brain that's responsible for idea generation, as you might imagine, lit up like a Christmas tree. But the more fascinating part is that a different region of the brain that's responsible. It's basically like your filter. So you don't say the wrong thing at a cocktail party. That went almost totally silent. It just completely shut off. So basically, we jazz musicians not only have trained one part of our brain to be more creative, but we've shut down another part of our brain so that we don't let our inhibitors hold us back. So you shut down your inner critic, basically. You shut down your inner critic. Yeah. And that's a learned skill, by the way. It's not innate. So while I don't know specifically with Derek, I do think that you know the, the brain is more and more complex and we're learning more and more every day about it. But, but there are ways to access and ultimately cultivate creativity. Some of the, the studies in the book, too, are fascinating. Like, like the simplest thing, there's this one study in Italy where they took two groups of people, as they always do in every study, you know, <laughs> identical from every yeah. other measurable uh, aspect. And, and they, they showed them each a video and then gave them a creativity test. They showed half the group, half of those people, a, sh a really boring video, like sheep grazing in a 
in a, in a meadow. And then the other one, they showed him like an awe-inspiring video, an incredible acts of brilliant athleticism or, you know, crushing waves into the majestic mountains and such. That's it. They just gave him different videos. And then the, the, the group that saw the awe-inspiring video outperformed their counterparts by like 80% on this creativity test. And so what we're learning is that the slightest tweaks to behavior, to preparation, to using different techniques can manifest just giant leaps forward uh, of creative output. You know, there, there's an article I've been wanting to write, like my daughter is is applying to college. And it just occurred to me, you know, I, I know your kid went through this four years ago, it seems to get worse every year, like the system is just all about getting the right bubble and the right thing. And it's just, I, I keep thinking there's a cost to that about worrying about getting everything right. Um, versus like, you're going to take a class, you're going to try for a class, you're not going to like it, you're going to do poorly. And that's not what you're meant to do. But I, I think that that school environment is really about getting it right, not about experimenting and figuring out if you like it. And don't take a class if you're not going to do well on it, which is not, not an environment that produces creative output. Totally agree. And, and we could talk about education all day. I'm really passionate about it. Like, for example, in, when you and I were in middle school, we probably learned how to do long division by hand. So yeah. meanwhile, I've raised hundreds of millions of dollars of capital. I've created thousands of jobs. I bought and sold companies. I've never used that skill once. Yeah. Yet, wouldn't it be more productive to have a mandatory class for all middle schoolers called Making Mistakes, where people would learn what's an appropriate mistake, what's a good risk versus a bad risk? How can you learn from them? You know? And so I think we really, again, no, no, no fault of teachers, but our system it needs some major overhaul. I read about an, a, a college professor, a math professor, that if you got every answer right, it was not an A grade. He said, math really should be problem solving. And if you're only doing this, this way, you're not taking any risks or trying different things. That's really not what math is all about. So I think that was kind of cool. I mean, he was taking a non-traditional approach. And, uh, you know, it's really funny. The, the outcomes that we see in life are often inversely related to those who, who follow the rules. Like if all you do is do what you're told, you know, follow the teacher, guess the right answer. Um, I don't think that those that that creates the most successful human being going forward, especially when many of the hard skills of the past have become either automated or outsourced. Whereas really the, the most needed job skills going forward are the ability to, to think on your feet, to be more creative. Hey, Elevate listeners. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify is the partner you need to keep the cash register ringing for your e-commerce business. <laughs> Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading platforms. I advise a lot of companies in the e-commerce space, and almost all of them have migrated to Shopify. And as a buyer, what I love about buying from Shopify-enabled sites is that they already know who I am, and I don't have to create a new account or enter all my payment info. The ShopPay service makes it faster and easier to buy, which surely helps with conversions. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S., and Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com elevate, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com elevate now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com elevate. Harvard Business Review provides information, tools, and practical advice on leadership, management, and strategy through the hbr.org website, their print publication, and their podcast. hbr.org is your go-to for leadership and business management articles. A recent favorite is Stop Eliminating Perfectly Good Candidates by Asking Them the Wrong Questions. 
Then there are other world-famous case studies, which premium subscribers can access as well. HBR produces a number of leading podcasts from HBR on leadership to my favorite, the HBR IdeaCast podcast. A subscription to HBR also includes access to videos, The Big Idea, HBR Magazine, and a wide variety of newsletters. While much of the Harvard Business Review content is available for free after signing up at their site, subscriptions to unlimited content start at only $10 a month. Go to www.hbr.org subscriptions and enter promo code ELEVATE right now to take advantage of this great offer. Again, go to www.hbr.org slash subscriptions and enter promo code ELEVATE to learn more about this great opportunity to help manage your career and business. Yeah, I know. I love that. You know, one thing I could never understand, which was I did not go to business school, but when we were hitting that point, a lot of my friends who had risen up in their careers and they're applying to business school and then they're taking the, what is it, the GRE exam or the entrance exam, they're going back and studying stuff that they haven't used since like eighth grade, like geometry and angles and like, well, I, I don't understand. They're the president of this company. They've just risen up in the organization. You ask them to go read study stuff they actually haven't used in 20 years. What's the applicability? So I, it always is strange to me. I totally agree. And, and just, you know, there's so many things I think need to change in education because they certainly are in business. You know, for example, you, you're right. You know, people are just like, oh, don't, you can't ever do any mistakes. But in, in a business environment, I advocate that, that people should be running experiments all the time. Every leader should be running four or five concurrent experiments, little controlled fixed time, fixed money experiments, but knowing full well that many of them will fail. That's really what innovation is, is sort of de-risking the process by trying lots of little things. And the optimal number of mistakes in a company is not zero. If you have zero failed experiments, you're not doing something right. If you have zero zero failed experiments, you are probably not going to have any breakthrough, right? To your point before, if if you have safety, you will not have growth. That, that's exactly right. That's what you want in a nuclear power plant, right? <laughs> you want you don't want anyone experimenting. You want you want careful. You want safety. You want preparation. You want policy. Like, but but a nuclear power plant is a very small example of you know where where you want that sort of behavior. Yeah, it, and but you know what? I still want creativity in a nuclear power plant. Yeah. And here's why: I, not not inappropriate. Not like, hey, dude, I wonder what <laughs> happens if they flip this switch. But but I want the team every shift to go and do a, a, a recap and say, okay, let's debrief. What worked? What didn't? Are there any new signals coming up? Is there any changes in, in conditions that we should think be thinking about? And so, in an appropriate time and place, I do think it's important that people are applying creative problem solving and inventive thinking because God forbid they don't. Right, and then there's also right. If you just did the same thing again and and over and over until it failed, then that's not going to work either. So I've heard a lot of people actually revisiting Malcolm Gladwell's uh, 10,000 hour rule. These days. I guess it's not his rule, but he gets credit for it. I, I know you've had your own spin on it. Well, I, I'd love to hear it. Yeah. So, and I'm a big Malcolm Gladwell fan, by the way, I'm not being critical yeah. of him, but, but this notion, it, originally he posited that it took 10,000 hours to become a master at something. But in the game of telephone, that got reinterpreted to say that if you want to learn a new skill, it takes 10,000 hours or somewhere around there. And that's just too daunting for most people. So we just do gravitate to the status quo. A better approach, which I like, is by an author named Joshua Kaufman. And the idea is he calls it the 20 hour rule. And that you're not going to create become a world-renowned expert in something in 20 hours. But if you apply 20 deliberate hours of practice and learning toward a particular thing, not all things, but most things, you'll actually gain a pretty good sense of understanding and, and even start to develop a skill. You know, if you never played tennis and you work hard for 20 hours deliberately, you know, you're not going to beat a, a champion, but you, you'll get the ball across the net. 
And so creativity is exactly the same because it's inherent in who we are. 20 hours of deliberate thought and practice can really yield a disproportionately high outcome. And that's the nice thing. It's a high leverage activity. In other words, if you become 5% more creative, you might deliver 1,000% better business results or 150% better economic results or you know, the things, again, it could be health results. But, but again, simply put, small amounts of creativity can yield big gains in, in terms of outcome. I mean, and this is this is a similar theme, you know, you've talked about, which is these like smaller chunks, smaller steps. So what what are some of the small habits we can each do on a daily basis to improve either our creativity or the environment of creativity? Yeah, well, I do a little ritual every day. It's only a five minute ritual. So it's not obviously that time consuming. Um, And I'll just share a couple elements of it. One is I spend one minute, literally one minute sort of guzzling creativity. In software engineering, we always say, if you want to change the output, you got to change the input. And so if I want to get better creative outputs, you say, well, what's the input? And so for me, I might go on YouTube and watch a live music performance, or I might um, stare at a beautiful painting, or I might read a poem. And so essentially, I'm just sort of guzzling in the creativity of others to get my juices flowing. The other thing that I do one minute a day, it's almost like jumping jacks for your creativity. It's calisthenics, basically. So I'll give myself some strange challenge. Like if you were on a desert island, you needed to communicate with a remote island, how could you do it? Or if you happen to take over a small country and you needed to triple the amount of of awards that you win in in the Olympics, how could you do that? And it's not designed to yield particular work product. It's more about keeping your brain sharp, solving problems with creativity. It's like a cognitive test for, yeah, puzzle. It's right, exactly. It's just getting practice, doing the reps. Uh, You know, the other thing that's so misunderstood about creativity is that we often think that ideas jump out of people's head and they're perfect. And that rarely happens. I mean, usually the creative process is, you know, lots of ideas that may be directionally interesting, but are deeply flawed. And only through a bunch of refinement and massaging and, you know, finally over time, you can yield a good result. So the problem is that for most of us, when an idea pops out and it's not perfect, it doesn't change the universe with perfection. We just discard it and then get discouraged. And so I really encourage people to like, let their messy ideas come out. In fact, I don't even like those initial things coming out of our minds being called an idea. Because when something's an idea, you sort of think, okay, it's worthy of scrutiny. And, you know, it, we, we, can, we can analyze it and judge it. I, like, I prefer the term spark because initial ideas, really, they're like a tadpole. They're not a fully formed idea. It's just a starting point, not an ending point. Right. And so you're not going to criticize yourself or others if you're just sparking. So I would encourage people like, hey, let's, let's come up with 100 sparks. And then we can look at them. And we might have 96 of them that stink. But we might have four that, well, not perfect, merit further exploration. So it sounds like... Um... A good exercise as a leader, a leadership team would just do scenario planning exercises, which you should do anyway, right? So we lose our biggest customer, you know, next week. What do we do? Our technology stops working. This ha- like that just forces that sort of brainstorming and thinking about like how would you react and what would you do? And I mean, is that a good way to have those sort of hypothetical scenarios? It's like sort of live case studies with a team. Yes, that's a great way to do it. I'll tell you one that I, I've been using for years that I really love. If anyone feel free to borrow. So as I was building my company, ePrize, we took an oppositional approach. We, we went after the digital promotion side of things, and many others were doing digital advertising. So pretty quickly, it wasn't a big category yet, but we became the dominant leader in our little market. And I was concerned. I mean, it was great, but I was concerned that we would become complacent and we would lose our creativity. Because often, great outcomes are, are, are achieved in the face of adversity. And we didn't have like a big, scary competitor at the time to fight against. So since there wasn't our arch evil nemesis out there, I made one up. So I invented a fake enemy called the Slither Corporation. And Slither was our like fictitious bad guys. They were, you know, they're trying to take us down. 
Anyway, Slither became an important part of our culture because we would use it. Uh, for example, let's say we're like, hey, how can we uh, reduce our production time by two days? Everyone tightens up and doesn't say anything. So instead, we say something like this. Our spies at Slither just got a report that they shaved two days out of their uh, out of their production time. How do you think they did it? And so Slither was like the ideal enemy that never missed a quarter. They, they were always at one step ahead of us. And by projecting, what's Slither doing? What's my counterpart at Slither up to these days? By inventing your own enemy, it actually completely cuts through all the the, the baggage of the past and allows your, your mind to wander. So that's also a really fun exercise to say, whatever your business is, if Warren Buffett and Bill Gates and, and, and Zuckerberg all put a billion dollars on the table and opened up a company that was designed right, right down the block, designed to take you down, what might they do? How might they approach it? And this whole inventing of your own enemy is actually a really productive exercise for leaders. So Josh, I just realized that I used that example in my book, Elevate, several years ago. It's in my book. Um, and I didn't realize, <laughs> I didn't make the connection that was you and your company. So that's very funny because uh, I have to send you a copy if you don't have it, because I use that example in a section on, on competitiveness. Oh, that's awesome. Well, you made my day. I'm so happy to hear that. That's really cool. All right. So on that note, um, last question for you, uh, and this can be singular or repeated and personal or professional. So it's multivariant, but what's a mistake that you have made that you've learned the most from in your career? Oh man, I, I have so many mistakes. Like, and, and the funny thing is, you know, I interview all these very successful people and they win more, but they also fail more. And so yep. I think first, just for anyone listening, we should recognize that that's part of the process. And, and when someone else screws something up, we can be compassionate to them, but sometimes we're not so compassionate to ourselves. And I would just encourage people to like, just like acknowledge that we're going to all screw something up. We're going to have setbacks. And I'm not like, it sucks in the moment, but let's recognize that that is part of the process. For me, I, I mean, again, it's hard to choose because I've made so many dumb gaffes, but one that comes to mind is we had this idea to create a self-service automated technology for small businesses. And we thought we could apply the great work we were doing at the time for companies like Coca-Cola and Procter & Gamble to the little guy and, and to democratize the whole field of digital promotions. And the idea was nice, but we, we kind of kept it behind the curtain and we, we invested millions of dollars and we developed this technology that was super slick and we released it to a fizzle. Nobody really cared. We sort of like didn't involve customers enough. We just missed. Our distribution was wonky, like made a bunch of mistakes. And so instead of doing these big little breakthroughs, we tried to come up with this massive idea. We swung for the fences, bet a ton of money on it, and frankly, lost. I mean, we were able to repurpose some of the technology, but that was not a, a positive outcome. Mm -hmm. After that, I started thinking, let's do it differently. I don't want to do that again. So we would actually do the opposite. We would do come up with, with prototypes that weren't fully built, and we bring them to the market at a fast rate. I'd bring five or six new ones a month. And these were like literally the equivalent of like duct tape and paper clips made out of Play-Doh. But we'd bring them to a client and then we'd see which client is willing to vote with their wallet. Mm -hmm. And once a client said, yep, I want that. Oh, but can you make this one little tweak? Oh, then and only then would we go in the back and scramble around and build it and deliver it. So it became client-generated R&D rather than what we thought was made sense in the ivory tower. Interesting. Well, that, that is a good way to do it. I, it is, right? I've seen people debate whether the dog and the cat will eat or we eat the food forever rather than just seeing if they like it. I, I worked with a guy years ago who did not believe in keeping things secret. He would, he would have me go do market research and ask people if it could do these things, because it wasn't untrivial how he was going to make the product work. If it could do these things, would you buy it and what would you pay for it? And he just had a much better sense of, of what the market looked like rather than guessing. Yeah, so true. The, the other one that comes to mind is, I was talking with a buddy of mine, that the whole process of, of interviewing is so silly. So basically, a, a friend of mine said, you know, an interview is basically an hour of two people lying to one another. You know, yeah. what's your biggest weakness? Oh, I work too hard. Like, I mean, it's, yeah. it's goofy and, and you, you learn nothing. 
I like the idea of auditions. So if you're trying out for a sports team or a musical combo, you, you audition. So okay. why not in the interviewing process, give somebody a piece of work to do and see how, what, how, how they deliver against it. You're better off paying, even if you pay them to do a project right. and see how it comes out. So anytime possible, I'm a big fan of auditioning. And I may have to make mistakes. I fell in love with people too early because they interviewed really well. And then later on, I was disappointed, which created a whole bunch of, uh, of other problems. Yeah, there are good interviewers who are bad workers and 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 bad interviewers who are good workers. <laughs> so you wanna you wanna suss that out. All right, Josh, where can people learn more about you and your work? I'd really encourage people to check out biglittlebreakthroughs.com. If they want to buy the book, awesome. But even if you don't, there's a there's a free creativity assessment, sort of like jumping on the scale and seeing how you weigh in today. There's downloadable tools, there's worksheets, there's all kinds quick start guide, all kinds of like stuff that I think will really help people build their creative muscle mass. So check it out at Big Little Breakthroughs. And there's lots about me there as well. I'm at Josh Linkner on all social media handles. All right, Josh, thanks for uh, stopping by and sharing your story with us today. Thank you so much. Keep doing great work. Appreciate it. All right. To our listeners, thanks for tuning into the Elevate podcast today. We'll include links to Josh and his new book, Big Little Breakthroughs, on the detailed episode page at robertglazer.com. If you enjoyed today's episode with Josh or have been enjoying the Elevate podcast in general, I'd really appreciate if you could leave a review. It only takes a second and it helps new users discover the show. Uh, if you're in Apple iTunes, just click on my library, scroll down on the Elevate podcast and leave a review. So thank you again for your support. Till next time, keep elevating. This episode is brought to you by the Yap Media Podcast Network. I'm Hala Taha, CEO of the award-winning digital media empire, Yap Media, and host of Yap Young and Profiting Podcast, a number one entrepreneurship and self-improvement podcast where you can listen, learn, and profit. On Young and Profiting Podcast, I interview the brightest minds in the world, and I turn their wisdom into actionable advice that you can use in your daily life. Each week, we dive into a new topic like the art of side hustles, how to level up your influence and persuasion, and goal setting. I interview A-list guests on Young and Profiting. I've got the best guests, like the world's number one negotiation expert, Chris Voss, Shark, Damon John, serial entrepreneurs, Alex and Layla Hermosi, and even movie stars like Matthew McConaughey. There's absolutely no fluff on my podcast, and that's on purpose. Every episode is jam-packed with advice that's gonna push your life forward. I do my research, I get straight to the point, and I take things really seriously which is why I'm known as the podcast princess and how I became one of the top podcasters in the world in less than five years. Young and Profiting Podcast is for all ages. Don't let the name fool you. It's an advanced show. As long as you want to learn and level up, you will be forever young. So join Podcast Royalty and subscribe to Young and Profiting Podcast or Yap, like it's often called by my Yap fam on Apple, Spotify, CastBox, or wherever you listen to your podcasts.